the signs, the areas of concern far outweigh the areas of encouragement for me right now? I think, I think there's a lot of concern there that, that we, in fact, are in a manufacturing recession. Question, what about the linkage between, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City and, and Dallas? And, you know, there was nothing between here and there. But I, I have to tell you, I have been quite uh, surprised by the pace of development north. From the middle of America, welcome to the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Covering local market data, news and reports to arm you with information you need to empower your investing and strengthen your American rights. Top Realtor, investor, husband, father, and veteran. Here is your host, Landon Witt. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit OKCRealEstateShow.com. Welcome to episode 69 of the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. On today's show, it's all about the economy. We have the top three economists here in Oklahoma City going to be featured on the show as part of a rebroadcast of the Chamber of Commerce's State of the Economy show. Now, this show is just not the entire broadcast, but just a portion of the broadcast that I feel is essential for you as a property owner here in Oklahoma City. So I want you to pay attention, enjoy what they've got to say. You can leave comments down below. Make sure to stay tuned as we're rolling into 2020. We're going to be talking about stuff that matters to you as a homeowner in Oklahoma City, including health of your home, health of your family, tips and tricks on paint colors that are selling in 2020 or they're going to be selling in 2020 things that we've learned from 2019 latest trends folks right here on the oklahoma city real estate show so hit that subscribe button hit that notification bell hit that little like there on the youtube videos to let us know and let the algorithm know that you're enjoying what you're seeing here so stay tuned we got something special on the show today we're going to start off with six important questions to these top economists on today's show. <laughs> okay, well, I have six questions I'd like to pose. And uh, the first one, uh, Russell, if you take the lead, sure. and then um, I'd like everybody else to weigh in on that. But in looking at the state and the Oklahoma City metro economies, what are the areas that you're most encouraged about? But on the flip side, where are you most concerned? Yeah, so I'll start uh, I'll kind of big picture and just be brief. So I'm really curious to hear Bob's and, and Mark's comments on, on how they feel things are going. Um, I think the, you know, for me, I guess the punchline would be that the signs, the areas of concern far outweigh the areas of encouragement for me right now. I think, I think big picture in the U.S. economy, I think I'm encouraged by the fact that maybe things aren't as bad as we thought they could be. Um, I think uh, if you look at some of the, re the most recent data, uh, you look at the weakness that we're seeing in, in Europe and some of the global economy that looks like England and Germany might just narrowly avoid uh, being officially classified as in recession, uh, but very weak economic conditions globally. We're kind of in a global manufacturing recession. And so there's some concerns about uh, the extent to which the United States will import that economic uh, weakness. And so I think some of the recent numbers maybe lead you to believe that, uh, that maybe things are, are going to be a, a better than worst feared. I don't know, is that, is that encouraging enough? How was better that Better than worst? Better than worst feared. How was that? Is that our theme line for 2020? <laughs> <That's right>. Okay. <laughs> on, the, on the flip side, is, uh, as we kind of look at, this, at the state's economy, 
Um, I, I see uh, areas of concern. I see a few, you know, a few sectors that are performing pretty strong through 2019. Uh, but as Percy noted in the, in the opening statement, kind of the cycle that we expected to see in 2019 has, has come to pass. We talked early, I think even last year this time, we talked about uh, you know, the metaphor of being in a, in a situation in which economic weakness develops so slowly that we almost don't perceive that we're getting sick as we're getting sick, I think was the kind of the, 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 the tool we used last year to try to describe it. And I think that's kind of where, I, I still think that's where we're at. Um, and so I think there's a good chance that the state finds itself in a mild contractionary cycle. I won't, I won't use the R word in this audience, but a mild contractionary cycle in the first couple of quarters of 2020. Um, and so my, my level of concern is actually pretty high. I hope that I'm on an island with my concern. I hope that Bob and Mark have much different perspectives. Russell, we hope you're on an island as I well. I know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bob? Well, first I want to say I'm always, we're always happy to have the questions ahead of time. That's right. And that I've uh, taken that a step further this year. I've started writing out the questions, not uh, writing out the answers right to here. the questions. Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the rationale for that is uh, that I, I feel that I can better control this old person tendency to tell too much truth. <laughs> And, and so uh, I, I promise not to read the, the things that, that, that I've written out, but I got to say that for the Oklahoma City metro area, we can be uh, very proud of what you've accomplished. Uh, we've had just, uh, just tremendous gains since the great financial crisis, that recession of 2008, 2009. You've gained 75,000 jobs. You've risen 13% in employment in comparison to 10% uh, nationally, in terms of personal income growth since 1990, you're 2.3 times higher in real personal income in the Oklahoma City metro area than you were in 1990. It's 130% real gain, and that's a, that's that's really something to be, a, be proud of. In terms of the share of the state's personal income, you've risen from 33% to 38%. And that's, uh, that's astounding. Tulsa has been fairly constant at 29 or 30 percent, depending on how uh, oil prices are doing. They're more sensitive uh, there than even Oklahoma City is. Now, what's the flip side? The flip side is the balance of the state. Non-Tulsa, non-Oklahoma City metropolitan area has fallen from 40 percent to 32 percent in share of, of personal income. Employment growth has been essentially stagnant, uh, if not not declining. Uh, when we went through our little mini recession uh, in 2015 and 2016 with declining energy prices, uh, we saw uh, very drastic uh, declines in the what I call the balance of the state. Now, a 1% shift in personal income within the state is $1.8 billion. So that gives you an idea of how, what the magnitudes have been of those declines. Wow. Mark? Yeah, uh, so what, what encourages me and what maybe concerns me, uh, there, there may be mirror images of each other. What, what encourages me is that we're actually, na I think we're navigating this energy cycle fairly well. Uh, you know, if you, if you go back to um, the, the past few cycles, we went from a complete industry restructuring in 2009-2010 to a really extended but fairly shallow two-year state recession and at this point we really we really have been facing headwinds I think 
I think I would use the description right now we're in, a, we're in an oil and gas headwind period. Yeah. And it, it is, I, I think Russell highlighted something that's quite interesting. It was, it's been almost imperceptible that's right. unless you're looking at the data. And in the data, we now really have 12 months of this behind us. We've, we've literally been in this for four quarters. So what I would suggest instead of the last cycle where we shed 20,000 plus wage and salary workers, at this point we've lost a couple of thousand. So, so I think what, what uh, concerns me is that we're still, we're still wrestling with oil and gas cycles. I, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're dealing with them better, but concerned that the, 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 uh, the industry is getting larger, far larger, and we're still wrestling with this volatility. Yeah, I think, I'll just finish saying, I think in some ways the story of 2020 will be a, a decoupling story, kind of to what extent has the state's economy decoupled from the energy industry? How well can we manage it? And to what extent is the Oklahoma City economy decoupled from the state's economy? And so to what extent can the, can the city sort of generate its own uh, economic reality in spite of what's happening in the rest of the state? I, I think we'll find out a lot in 2020 sort of the extent of, the extent of this decoupling if it's, if it's happening at all. Okay. All right. Well, the next question is relative to education and workforce, and there's been a lot of recent discussion relative to automation and the future of work. But can you speak to some of the opportunities in the future, as well as the challenges for Oklahoma companies as we face those in terms of education and workforce? And Bob, why don't you lead us off with this one? Right. Computerization, robotics has been with us for some time. I was a young assistant professor in Detroit, Michigan, my first job out of uh, graduate school, and personally witnessed robotics taking over the welding of cars and, and the painting of cars there to uh, mass, to mass uh, layoffs associated with that move. Uh, increasingly, we've seen robotics come into play more and more, and it'll be kind of like, well, the myth of the, the, uh, the you boil a frog slowly, well, they never notice it and jump out. You know, this is a myth, by the way, but it, it's a nice, you it's haven't a, tested it, have you? No, no. Okay. It's a nice, it's a nice analogy, but I think what we will, we, what we will see as we move ahead, artificial intelligence, uh, driverless vehicles. You know, if we keep taking sort of five-year slices of time, five and ten-year slices of time, we'll see a lot of difference. Uh, but it, it will be rather imperceptible from just one year to the next what's going on. But the implications are, are, are tremendous. Uh, there are two million people in this, uh, in this economy that drive trucks, uh, for example. Uh, so we could have some very, very uh, outstanding, uh, dramatic shifts in workforce. Uh, I would contend that it's going on already, though. We've seen in the last uh, 20, 26 years, going back to 27 years, going back to 1992, and you've heard me say before, there has been no growth in jobs for those who have high school or less educational attainment in those 26 years. And the numbers just keep getting worse. Uh, in 2018, we had for the first time more graduates, bachelor's degree graduates, highest attainment level graduate uh, with a bachelor's degree higher than those who have high school diplomas uh, in, the, in the employed workforce in the economy. Now, you may say, well, that's just because people have more education, uh, but I say that's, that's really poor economics. Uh, uh, you know, consider this thought experiment. Uh, you and I are in competition producing in the same, uh, same industry. 
And you hire college grads and I hire high school grads. You pay your college grads more because you have to pay them more. And uh, I pay the high school grads less, but let's assume they have equal productivity. Well, then my costs are going to be lower than yours and I'm going to put you out of business. Uh, the point being, college grads are paid more because their productivity justifies their wage. And we see that, we see that going on and the, the wage differentials are, are, are just huge. Now, we have some workforce development initiatives uh, in the state. They're, they're uh, doing good work. They've got a lot of good numbers up there. We've got the Office of Oklahoma Workforce Development. Uh, and they track such things as, well, let's look out to 2028 and what's the job prospects look like. Well, two-thirds of their titles are college required, colleges required for two-thirds of the titles that they list there. And so we really have to rethink education in this state. We have to, we have to think more in terms of not K through 12, but K through 16 if not even higher, you're starting to hear talk that, that master's degrees are the new bachelor's degrees. So uh, these are trends, they're solid, they're in place, and, uh, in, 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 but it is a K through 16 kind of deal. You wanna be an engineer, you wanna be a scientist, it starts in grade school. And we need to talk more about and, and engage and plan and execute in that realm of, of, of doing a much better job of getting people through uh, these higher educational levels. Yeah, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the interesting, when you think about like skills gaps and where are jobs going, I think uh, kind of to Bob's point, because it does happen so slowly and somewhat imperceptibly, I, I, I think there's, I think when we talk to employers sometimes, we feel like employers haven't quite uh, appreciated the extent to which the workers they're trying to hire now are different from the workers they were trying to hire 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. It's still a manufacturer worker. It's still an industrial worker. Um, the wage that I would expect to pay that worker is still X, and, but the skills that I expect out of that worker are much higher. I expect that worker to be able to operate complex machinery. I expect that worker to be technologically savvy. I expect that worker to have some slightly different skill sets, but they're still a manufacturing worker and they should still be paid sort of these wages. And so I think there's a, a, sort of a bit of a disconnect as firms begin to sort of reconcile the reality that, that my workers require a different set of skills, a higher set of skills, and they have to be compensated for, for to Bob's point, for the, the productivity that that those skills uh, engender. I think in the same way in the universities, we're a little slow to be disrupted as well. I think we're trying to partner with employers and really trying to figure out how do we create college grads who are uh, agile workers. Um, again, building off Bob's point, if, if the, if the uh, industry in which they operate is going to change significantly in the years ahead, we need college grads who are going to be agile and can adapt to an evolving uh, workspace, evolving levels of technology that complement the labor that they bring to the table. And, and so we're trying to figure out how do we work with employers, what can universities teach and do well, how can we partner with HR systems inside of employers to create these, again, the, you know, I, I keep using the word over and over again, these, these higher agility workers that can accommodate these changes because the disruptions are happening, they're happening slowly enough that, that, uh, that I think we'll, we'll sort of be surprised by them someday. Um, instead of really being proactively trying to accommodate them a little bit. I don't know. 
I'll add just one quick thing, and that is when you look at the research, when you, when you look at, take a broad look at the key underlying factors that drive economic growth, there's still a relatively small set. It's things like capital spending, it is things like uh, creating goods that are traded outside the region, and education. And I, th I think it's still clear to say that the, the number one factor is still education. I think empirically, we still believe that. It's still in the data. Yes. And innovative ways to consider education and its opportunities and going forward. And it's, it's hitting them at all levels of their lives. Yeah. Um, on December 10th, uh, Oklahoma City residents will have an opportunity to vote on the fourth MAPS initiative. Um, Mark, can you comment on how previous MAPS projects have impacted from an economic development standpoint or really benefited the area? Yeah, big. That's a big question. I, I'm going to take your time. I'm going to I'm going to condense eight hours into two minutes here if I can. If you're then you need to be on sound bites. OK, so so you're going to miss a lot is the is the is the point here. You know, um, how do you evaluate maps? Well, I'm going to I'm going to take the economic results of maps and look at them. Um, there are several other dimensions you could follow, but it, it goes sort of like this. You know, Oklahoma City was in dire straits 25 years ago. We're 25 years into this. We spent $1.8 billion, as Percy said earlier. Um, and, and Oklahoma City, downtown in particular, Bricktown, were just in dire straits. The hope was really ambitious. Maybe we stop the decline, create a little momentum, build a few attractions, maybe get some hotel activity, and, and go from there. And as it turned out, every one of the original MAPS projects are foundational uh, pieces of downtown Oklahoma City and Bricktown now. Bricktown is, I think, is, is developed way beyond even the ambition uh, of the original MAPS projects. And then we, we shifted to education immediately after that. And you know, I think, I think the Oklahoma City public school system parallels downtown almost perfectly. You know, they were experiencing the same economic conditions, the same demographic collapse, the same outflow of population from the school district, and the hope was to remedy a, an, a, just an overarching financial problem that the normal ad valorem tax system was not going to cure. We were not going to crawl out from underneath that problem. And I think addressing, you know, essentially um, deferred spending on the school system and removing that burden to allow the system now, I think you're beginning to see the early stages of, uh, of remaking the system, at least from a, a curriculum and, a, and an instruction point of view. And then we moved to MAPS 3 some just phenomenal projects. Um, they're almost all finished. You see the Omni Hotel sitting right beside the, uh, the, the sales tax funded convention center right across the street from Scissortail Park. These are just, these are, these are remarkable projects. And you know, what has happened? Well, what I would argue for you is that um, nearly everything that was predicted has taken place. You know, Percy mentioned again, um, you know, $3.9 billion in private sector expenditures, uh, investment, I would argue it's gone well past $4 billion at this point. Um, you have seen not only the investment but rising property values for the entire area. That wealth creation in the terms of rising property values has been substantial. You've seen, I'll just, I'll just list a few of these. 
remarkable hotel development. You've seen thousands of residential housing units, a complete remake of the, the residential sector downtown. You have seen the Bricktown area. We track a large group of parcels. You've seen a large group of parcels double in property value since MAPS was, was first undertaken. You've seen uh, population growth. You've seen employment growth in the region. You've seen rapidly rising wages among the jobs that are downtown. You're, you're seeing all of these things that, that were hoped for, this creation of a, a place to live, work, and play. You're seeing all of that gelling. And, and I would say you can date it really to 2009-ish, 9-10, where there was a dramatic shift in the trajectory of the downtown area. You can see it clearly in the data. Everything accelerated, and what you saw was downtown shifting from a lagging region, lagging the broader Oklahoma City, area lagging the, the, the broader Oklahoma County area to now it is leading in population growth, job growth, wage growth, investment growth. Most of the investment in the region now and for years has been concentrated in the downtown area. Completely remake. I give it five stars, five tomatoes, whichever, whichever is uh, more appropriate. You know, I, I would add one other thing too. Um, five stars for idea five stars for execution. You know, the city, the city employees and staff manage these projects essentially. And you can imagine how this might have gone in other cities that, that don't function quite as well as Oklahoma City. So I, I actually think they, they deserve some recognition for the execution of the plan. Um, all around five stars. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I really like about the maps, in, in addition to everything that Mark just, just mentioned, uh, one of the things that encourages me about Oklahoma City long term is that we're having these regular conversations about connectivity, about uh, public spaces, uh, about innovation. And I think a lot of these conversations, we can sort of drive back to the MAPS ideas. I think, you know, these, these regular MAPS development proposals and votes encourage in our community these important conversations. And so I think in addition to all the physical outcomes that Mark described, I think one of the things that I, that I observe as, as a benefit is, to the process is just the, converse, the, the better conversations that we're having around, around connectivity, innovation, and things like that. Well, on the, uh, talking about connectivity and so on, a lot of American cities like San Jose, Houston, Los Angeles, Albuquerque, and now New Orleans have announced plans to reduce or ban natural gas as a step toward becoming carbon-free in the next few decades. Booming shell production has allowed the U.S. to surpass Saudi Arabia as the world's largest producer of petroleum. And with all of this contradiction, how do we expect our state's energy economy to perform and what factors should we keep an eye on? Russell. Yeah, so I'm not overly concerned about companies and cities that are, that are making these big announcements about trying to move away from fossil fuels or embrace renewables. I think when you look across the, you look across the you know, total U.S. energy consumption, I think you know, the ability, uh, you know, renewables can, can accommodate support maybe a little less than 20% of total energy consumption. I think, that's pretty, I think that's pretty fixed and growing pretty slowly. So on the one hand, I, if I was a company, if I was a city, even if I was an energy city like Houston, I would feel some incentive to be a first mover to try to claim a piece of that fairly limited renewables portfolio as part of my own, that that's, that's what I'm sort of operating out of and, and consuming out of. And so when I see companies make these announcements, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't tend to react too much. 
To the broader question, though, of how the state's energy economy performs, I'll, I'll go back and build off Mark's comments. We've, we've handled this energy cycle um, incredibly well so far. I think part of that is we don't have 20,000 excess jobs in the industry to cut this time around. And so the job cuts that are coming out are slower and they're kind of trickling out with smaller announcements. And so we haven't had sort of those, those big headline announcements that alert us all to the reality of the, difficult, the difficulties that are uh, in the energy sector. Um, and so I, I do, uh, if you, I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I think part of the story of 2020 is a decoupling story. If you ask me to place my bet right now as to whether or not I think the Oklahoma economy is successfully decoupled from the energy industry that we can withstand sort of contraction that we're in right now, I would place my bet that the answer is no, that we have not sufficiently uh, decoupled. Um, and so again, hence my concern for, uh, you know, for 2020. Longer term, uh, you, you look at U, uh, U.S. oil production at you know 12 and a half million barrels of oil a day. Uh, you know the, the, the shell uh, revolution has has been just that. So I think there's still a long uh, a long term uh, run ahead of us in terms of where the industry and where the United States is positioned to become really a net energy exporter probably in 2020, much earlier than we had previously anticipated. So I think there's, I think there's some run there. Uh, but I do uh, worry that in Oklahoma uh, that, uh, that maybe the, the level of prices that we need to support robust activity, we kind of tried to convince ourselves maybe it was 45 or $50 oil, kept a robust oil field in, in our scoop and some of our other producing basins. Maybe it's not 45, maybe it's 55, maybe it's 60. And so I think as I look down the road, so what factors am I watching? I'm trying to figure out what price is the price that we really need to make uh, to make our fields work. And the other thing I'm watching is capital markets. Capital markets are telling our companies, you've got to find a way to constrain your drilling budgets within your free cash flow and access to capital uh, you know, to, to keep your, your growth uh, paradigms up and running is, is, is not there. Capital markets are punishing producers a little bit. And so that's the other thing. As I would look out over the next two or three years, I'm kind of watching capital markets, see how capital markets respond uh, you know, to, uh, to our independent producers and what they're doing here in Oklahoma. Thank you, Russell. Bob, this is for you. The Federal Reserve has been under close scrutiny re recently as it considers future interest rate cuts. With low unemployment and slowing job growth, what do you believe we should expect in the future? Oh, soothsayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't see a recession on, on the horizon. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and in fact, I'm willing to uh, uh, guarantee that the horizon's at least six to eight weeks uh, out in the future. <laughs> That's a rounding error. Okay. Uh, yeah, the recession probabilities are up a little, but maybe 25, 30% within the next year uh, is, is something you can find out there and it's fairly easy to agree with because things are, are slowing. There are some trouble spots uh, internationally with growth and whatnot, but weakness continuing, but, uh, but no recession. As far as the Fed goes, well, the Fed is going to be uh, joined at the hip uh, uh, monetary and fiscal policy uh, moving forward, largely as a consequence of these huge deficits we're running. We did the fiscal year we just finished, $984 billion, and, and it was the deficit for the, for the fiscal year that, that, that finished in October uh, 31st. And uh, it's scheduled to go to 1.1. Uh, in in uh, next next year, so 
Uh, somebody's got to buy all these bonds, and what better way to buy them than magical electronic entries on the, on the, the Fed's balance sheet? You know, it's just uh, just quite an easy way to uh, to deal with the problem of uh, spending well beyond well beyond your means. I tell you, folks, we're living in an Alice in Wonderland world here. I don't, you know, government by Twitter. Uh, uh, you've got. Uh, You've got the, the principal policy goal uh, seems to be let's uh, not let the stock market fall any because that would be uh, that would be an, would be an issue. Uh, quantitative tightening last year, then quantitative easing right away. Uh, it, uh, we 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 had the inverted yield curve, and now it's back uh, to normal. It's just, I mean, if anybody really tells you they know what's going on, well. Just doubt them, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's... Do you it's, know what's, what's going on, Bob? <laughs> well, we're through the looking glass, and yeah. so, you know, uh, we've, got, we've got $17 trillion, uh, folks, uh, that's out there in publicly traded instruments, financial instruments uh, internationally, that are trading at negative yields. Now, I haven't seen a good explanation of negative yields yet. Uh, maybe there is one out there, uh, but the fact of the the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, a lot of people are trying to explain them. I haven't heard a good explanation, and there's a lot of concern that they they may be coming here uh, with all these uh, with all these deficits. I mean, we're talking. We've grown from 60% 10 years ago of the ratio of deficits to GDP to 104%. In 10 years, we've gone to that that extent. We're looking at 5% deficits uh, in re relation to GDP as far out in the future as, as you can as you can you can look. And uh, I I just uh, I just don't know what where of all the conservative uh, fiscally prudent. Uh, politicians gone. Well, the fact of the matter is, politicians figured out uh, how to rig the game: uh, lower taxes, increase spending, uh, reward old people, which I'm increasingly sympathetic with, <laughs> uh, with Medicare and and uh, in inflation indexed. Uh, so, you know, I I don't. I don't really know where it's all going, but I, I, I do know that uh, I find it hard to imagine our being able to continue down this path without uh, things blowing up eventually. But I know I've been saying this for a long time, and you're tired of hearing it. So <laughs> just keeps, it'll, it will be right. Eventually, just keep saying it. I'm not changing. I will be right. That's exactly right. One hundred percent correct. Mark, I'm going to have the final question for you before we open it up to the audience. But every four years, presidential elections offer us an opportunity to listen to a number of differing economic plans. And likewise, our state seems to always be searching for stability in fiscal policy. Either at the federal or state level, what ideas do you think that are out there that could be especially successful or harmful for growth? Uh, stability, stability. Famous, famous stability. You know, um, I, I think there are a number of things that could be harmful, and I think we're already doing a few of them. And I think, um, I think you, have to, you have to recognize the fact that the state is really at this point facing 
an interesting challenge, overstability. It, you know, if, uh, if you haven't looked at the numbers lately, the, the, the natural gas production in the state has doubled in a little over a decade, and crude, crude production has tripled in less than a decade. So we now have you know, this increased reliance on oil and gas activity, and we do something really interesting in Oklahoma. We take our most volatile tax revenue stream, and we immediately apply it to our most permanent expenditure, education. Take it right off the top, and, and that apparently, you know, you tell me if that's working well or not. But what I think we're, I think what we're missing is one fundamental thought about the spending side. I think Oklahoma's proven we're pretty good about setting money aside. You know, the rainy day fund has been a really interesting experiment for many decades, and it's actually worked, I would argue, quite well. We have a new stabilization fund we put in place, and we're pretty good about setting aside these reserves. But what we aren't real good at is adjusting our spending patterns to what would be considered, at least in my language, I'm gonna call it core, the core, the core spending or revenue trend. We need to detrend revenue and come up with a number that represents spending as if the oil and gas industry was just another industry. I think, I think that's what we're missing is the fact that we aren't budgeting and spending on core revenue. Instead, we're just constantly adapting to, to excess funds flowing out and then trying to bring it back into the budget. And I think you do a, I think you do a couple of things that can help and I think are, are really prudent moves. And that is one, every year we need to come up with an estimate. And this is really quite simple to do. We've been doing it for years, an estimate of what tax revenue would look like if the oil and gas industry was just an average industry. And that number is what we should be using as a foundational basis for spending on an ongoing basis. When revenue comes in above those numbers, put it aside. When it comes in below those numbers, you pull it out of these funds. And, and I'm, I'm, I know there's a lot of discussion about endowment funds. I personally am not a fan of endowments being operated by governments. I think you put it there until you need it and you bring it back. If, if funds get too large, you carve it off the top and spend it. But nonetheless, I think we're missing that one fundamental point about every year calculating that core revenue number. What is our revenue assuming oil and gas was just a normal industry, and then let's adjust to it. Let's either put excess funds aside or let's pull funds out of, out of savings and use them. And that, I think, is, is the, that fundamental shift in mindset that we, we seem to be missing. Very profound. I just, just say that, that there, in this political era, there's always talk of new ornaments to hang on the federal uh, Christmas tree. And, and I, I just hope that you know, Medicare for all, well, it's kind of a neat concept, but I just just hope that uh, we recognize that a lot of things are about to blow up anyway in the Social Security area. Let's not hang any more on it. Uh, I've had a perfect example of this in the, house, in the household of be careful what you ask for uh, because I was finally allowed to have a ninja blender. And, <laughs> And we're look, my wife and I were looking at this ninja blender and the giant canister and, and the tower of blades that are in it. And she says, well, now I will be able to dispose of your body. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> One hand at a so, time. Okay. So careful what you ask for. There is, there is ultimately no, no free lunch. 
a, a boiling frog and ninja cut up. <laughs> Any other comments on that before we open it up to the audience? I tell follow that one. Okay. Uh, if you will, any questions you have, please raise your hand and then we'll have someone from the chamber staff come over with the microphone. Javier, you're always up for a question, aren't you? Always. Always. So we avoided the recession of 2008. And I know the Chamber's been working very hard to diversify our economy. Where are we in terms of economic diversity now? And how, wh where do you see the biggest risk with that diversity that might impact our city? Well, I, I'll take a shot at it. Um, I think we went in reverse the past decade. <clears throat> you know, I described the increase in, in, uh, in production. You know, we doubled natural gas production, we tripled oil production. Royalties now are running at about two and a half billion dollars a year. Production is anywhere from, you know, 15 to 18 billion dollars a year. We have we have reignited it. You know, I I, I really um, I don't know if it's even desirable though to diversify away from the oil and gas sector. If you take the past 15 years where the industry has reemerged, if you take the core production, drilling, and support side of the oil and gas sector and you take refineries and pipelines, that's exactly half of all real GDP growth the past 15 years. So I don't think it's, I really am, I, I don't really uh, suggest that language. I know, I know that's what our instinct is, to diversify away from it. What we've got to focus on is mitigating the volatility effects. And I think we are getting better, the industry's getting better, government is getting better, those who, who are employed or who do business with the oil and gas industry are getting better at it. But, um, but I, I would argue we really don't want to diversify away and, it, and it's going in the opposite direction. Yeah, I tend to agree. So we just had this talk at the Chamber Leadership Summit and we talked about you know, having a specialized economy in and of itself is not necessarily bad. I, I think Mark talked about mitigating the volatility. The word we used was economic agility, right? How do we create an economy that's agile enough to move from one degree of specialization to another when the time comes? I think part of that economic agility is, is really trying to uh, find a way to, to complete a robust uh, entrepreneurial environment. We're just not there yet. We have some of the pieces. Uh, but we don't have the full ecosystem that would be necessary to generate the sort of uh, entrepreneurial activity that would create the organic, that would create the organic economic diversification. Um, I'll, I'll admit that uh, we have not seen diversification happen naturally as fast as I would have thought. So six, seven years ago, you know, I, I would have been giving speeches talking about how this technologically intensive oil and gas industry was going to generate innovative entrepreneurial workers that would spin off out of those companies and start non-oil and gas companies using that, uh, you know, that technology and, and, and that they were developing inside the industry. And that hasn't happened as quickly as, as I would have expected. And so I think Mark's dead on. It's not happening as fast as we would have expected, but I don't know that it's, I agree with Mark, I don't think specialization in and of itself is bad. What I tend to think about is how are we positioning ourselves to be agile to move to the next thing when it's time to move to the next thing. Other questions? Back here. Yeah, my question is, um, do you think PMI services and manufacturing numbers have bottomed because they're both pointing towards contraction in the economy. Did you understand the question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, could, could you repeat? Do you mind repeating Ma it? Maybe not index. so close to the mic. PMI yeah. manufacturing index, manufacturing activity. Are we, are we in a manufacturing recession? Is that correct? That, yes. That's the gist of the question. Yeah. Thank you. I think I think there's a lot of concern there that that we in fact are in a manufacturing recession. Uh, 
now you're looking at uh, the chief indicators that, that we have, the, uh, the IMS uh, uh, Institute Supply Management, ISM, uh, indicator is uh, below the 50 mark, and that's generally something that, that we watch. Employment is suffering a little bit. And so I, I think that, that that's, that's likely, uh, likely the case. Yeah. We definitely are in Oklahoma. I agree. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so I'm on my, I'm on my island of concern here um, and, and still feel like, uh, you know, particularly Mark talked about Tulsa. Tulsa is a little more prone to, to changes in oil and gas prices and manufacturing activity. Uh, I would still expect that we import more manufacturing weakness than we currently have. And so uh, I, I'm, I am on board with concern for, for deepening manufacturing recession. The Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex continues to grow dramatically and it's not that far away from us. What's good and what's not good for us about that? Ooh, you're closest there. Yeah, you're the closest <laughs> one. You're, you're almost in the Metroplex, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I gotta say that uh, uh, we really need to be studying it more. It's incredible what's uh, gone on in Texas. I talked about earlier how shares of uh, personal income have shifted in the state. Well, since 1990, uh, Texas, uh, in relation to, uh, to the nation as a whole, has gone from uh, six point something percent to, to over 8% in, that, in that, that period of time. It's, it's, just, it's remarkable what's, uh, what's happening there. Uh, so I, I haven't really poured over the data to really study how different it is, uh, but uh, it, it certainly uh, has a lot of uh, a lot of um, of growth uh, and very uh, large scale growth in comparison to the nation. So uh, I would say that they do uh, rely heavily on the property tax down there, oh, yeah. and uh, we rely heavily on the income tax. <laughs> And maybe uh, maybe that uh, that might be a, might be a difference. The more the more ways you can find to socket to the poor, uh, the, I guess is how, is the greater the growth of your economy will be. A socket through the what? To the poor. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so I think I think uh, I think Dallas is sort of a. A magnet of economic activity. I, you know, what we've talked a lot about the I-35 corridor. So I think there's probably some net benefits to Oklahoma City being attached on this corridor. And uh, I was just in uh, in, uh, in a meeting and saw a presentation from a Federal Reserve economist who who looks at metro growth. His name is Jordan Rappaport, and and he sort of he looked at growth rates of big cities and and has this article where he argues that as cities grow to a certain size, beyond a certain size, that the cost of growth exceed the benefits of growth, and we see cities that have this, this exponential, this really fast growth that really begins to curtail as they reach a certain size. Um, and so if you believe that story in Dallas, that maybe Dallas reaches you know, some growth, some size in which further growth really comes at a cost, and maybe that growth does continue to spill up the I-35 corridor, uh, you know, the, way we're, you know, the way we're seeing it, maybe there's some benefit there for, uh, for Oklahoma City. Uh, I wonder, da, da, Dallas, and this is not my area, but you know, Dallas is, strikes me as more of a collection of cities rather than a city, and so I wonder if they're able to support growth for longer as we think about, you know, Dallas and Arlington and Fort Worth and these, all these cities that seem to be able to just, could you, are, they, are they a collection of medium-sized cities that still have a lot of growth ahead of them? Or are they one big city that's sort of reached the end of its growth, its growth cycle? I, these were just thoughts that came up as I was listening to this presentation. But I think on net, 
um, it probably helps us to be on this on this sort of interstate core of, of fast developing economic activity. I'll, I'll pile on, on Dallas a little bit. Um, you know, I, I remember 30 years ago having a discussion with a real well-known economist in Texas asking about, you know, this very question, what about the linkage between, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, and, and Dallas? And, you know, there was nothing between here and there. But I, I have to tell you, I have been, I have been uh, quite uh, surprised by the pace of development north. You know, the, the U.S. is nothing but a collection of big blobs and really long corridors. And I really wasn't sure we would see that Dallas to Oklahoma City corridor develop in my lifetime. And I tell you what, the pace at which it is coming north out of Dallas, um, have, have we all been to Thackerville? Yeah. Lately, um, we camped in the campground there a couple of weeks ago, and I have to tell you, it is just astounding. And that's how these corridors develop. We're already seeing those key, you know, those key investments, and I fully expect that at the pace we're going, your question in 20 years is going to be one of the more frequently asked questions about that development of the corridor from, say, Denton to Norman. You know, at what stage are we and what is happening on that, you know, that, that loop between Denton and Norman? It is remarkable. It's moving a lot faster than I thought it would. And um, I, I suggest that that corridor has a, a really interesting future for the next 20 or 30 years. It'd be moving faster, but they always have construction that's on right. I-35. Yeah, that, that's part of it. Yes, part of it. We have two minutes remaining. I believe we have a question over here. Thank you all for sharing this morning. As a fellow economist and also one of the politicians you mentioned, <laughs> I have a two-parter for you. First, what would be the top three policy priorities that you would pursue to help us move in a more positive, stable direction? And what are a few that you've seen us already put in place that have been uh, beneficial towards that growth? I think Russell needs... No, no, <laughs> not once. They're going to tap I dance. not make policy recommendations. <laughs> uh, you know, I, so I guess I'll just, instead of making a recommendation, I'll just uh, repeat Mark's recommendation. That, uh, <laughs> you know, you know which, is one, which is one that we've made before, which really, it's, it's, it's really not that hard to sort of, to tease out what a sustainable, normal level of oil and gas activity would be and figure out what the tax revenue would be off that normal, sustainable, recurring level. Um, and then really taking that excess and setting it aside and being able to, to really plan around and, and offset some of that volatility. That really should be something that's, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's doable. That's a proposal that, you know, that we've thrown out there for years. And I think that would help a little bit on the volatility side. Um, I think, and I don't know what the policy is, but you know, I still go back to you know, Bob's opening comments about the importance of education and thinking about the entire K through 16 spectrum of education. Uh, and I think we use this word last year in the same audience. I, I think we are slow to be disrupted. So we think about disruptive technologies as long as they're not disruptive to me. I don't want to be disrupted. Um, I think we're really going to have to embrace disruptive technology and think about how do we use disruptive technologies to really rethink our education paradigm, K through 16, uh, and, and make it something that creates uh, thoughtful, uh, critical workers who can be agile in a, in a changing economy. I don't know what that policy is, but I'd like to see us take a few more chances and, and be willing to be disrupted a little bit. 
And I think the workforce development issues are really, really keen. And, and to me, how Oklahoma City goes forward in the future is to, is to take this bull by the horns and wrestle it down to figure out what it needs to be, uh, how we coordinate our, our resource deployment, how we take advantage of what we have in the state and, and, and produce a workforce development system that really takes us in, into the next uh, 20 to 30 years. And that's, uh, and ultimately, ultimately, we'd like our grandchildren to be close, wouldn't we? And so let's figure out uh, how we make this work. And I really think that we have to make it work, not so much from a state level, uh, but from sort of a city-state kind of level. And that's what you've got going for you here in Oklahoma City. You know how to talk internally and how to make decisions and, and put resources to work. And so I just encourage you to continue uh, those placemaking activities which have been uh, so astounding here and uh, so productive. Awesome. Mark Russell and Ninja Bob, are they amazing economists? <laughs>